Green Left Weekly Radio. There is one newspaper that is independent of powerful interests, and that's Green Left Weekly. It's the people's voice, committed to human and civil rights, environmental sustainability, democracy and equality. It presents ideas mainstream media won't. It's the leading source of local, national and international news analysis and discussion and debate to strengthen the anti-capitalist movement. It exposes the lies and distortions of the power brokers and helps us to better understand the world around us. Good morning, listeners. Welcome to another Green Left Weekly Radio and Friday Breakfast Combined Program. This Friday, uh, this is a um, pre-recorded program because the whole team has gone down to Sydney for a national conference. These interviews were, were recorded just a few days ago, so they are current. Hope you enjoy the program. So we'll start off with a contribution that was made by myself at a there was a celebration of 30 years since the strike in 1986. The strike was led by Irene Bolch, at that time known as Irene Bolshevik, and it was uh, an enormous strike. Uh, more than uh, 20,000 nurses took part in it. So I am going to give you some perspective, political perspective on it. What we will do is we'll come back to the contribution made by Irene on another date to round out the picture. And we also have Gwyneth Evans who contributed to it. So we should start off with my contribution for a start, and then we'll um, go on to the others. So my name is Lalita Chilaya. Of course, I'm hosting the program today, um, and uh, you're going to have to listen to my voice for another 17 to 18 minutes uh, in this contribution. Hope you enjoy it. Just to, to put the, the strike in the broader context, national and international, but let me say that the strike by the nurses in 1986 was a mammoth effort. At any one time, there were between 14 to 20,000 nurses out on strike, and there was 95% women, and only 5% of the membership were men. Um, it was a time when, in Victoria, in fact, across Australia, um, trade unions were obliged not to take industrial action. I'll come back to the point later why I use the word obliged. It was a 50-day strike, and I wouldn't exchange one of those days for any, any other time in my life. It was amazing. It was sheer energy, the commitment, the mobilizations from the nurses, women, and led by a woman who was determined to support the nurses. It was just amazing. The, the whole energy, the, the, the spirit was fantastic. I still get emotional when I talk about it. Okay, so I'm going to start with the obstacles, um, especially from the government and the media, that nurses faced. So there was increasing hostility from the Victorian Labour government at that time. Um, on the 3rd of November, the Victorian Premier at that time, John Cain, threatened to invoke the Essential Services Act of 1958, providing police with the power to break picket lines, to force nurses back to work, and arrest those nurses who refused. Cain warned that any nurse that continued to strike face stand-downs, sackings, actions, or far more serious than sacking. And I've never worked out what that he meant by that. On November 6, 1986, Cain gave a two-minute television 
address, describing the RANF leaders as dogmatic and uncompromising, and yay to that. And obviously, that did not work. A few days later, he appealed. He said, I am now appealing to nurses to think again about their action. I urge nurses to meet their obligations and put patients first. Stay at work and have, a dispute, have the dispute, disputed claims sorted out through arbitration, which is a boss's court. That's a proper and long accepted process for resolving industrial disputes. Now it's time for nurses to give a little. This is after several decades of no wage rise for nurses. So he had the audacity to say that we had to give a little more, really. So later, the state Labour government sought to have a joint hearing by the state and federal commissions on this matter, but it ran into complications. So that was the state government. So let's go to the media. And this is fun. The media was critical of what was perceived by them to be an obstreperous and shameless cash grab by the RANF. As I said before, the nurses had not had a wage rise in decades. The editorial of the age on the 5th of November said this, the government from the start of this dispute has demonstrated considerable goodwill towards the nurses, while the nurses have shown an increasing willingness to trade on the public credibility. The credibility will be badly tarnished if they maintain their foolish strike, which is putting the health and safety of sick people at risk. The reality was no one died. No one suffered because we were extremely well organized. The only one who suffered were doctors who had to do nursing duties at that time. They had no choice. Another editorial from the age, which is titled, Nurses Must Not Win. So this is the 12th of November. The nurses are the ones who must give ground, they said. When they do end the dispute without having extracted everything they want, it will be tempting for them to blame the government, the commission, the Trades Hall Council, the health department and the media. But they should not. They should direct the anger at the union for not telling them what happens if you go on strike for a multi-million dollar pay claim outside the wage fixing guidelines when the economy is in recession. You lose. Well, we didn't. <laughs> Another from the age. Which Victorian union has a charismatic but headstrong official dubbed the Führer? Irene. <laughs> this was a label given to her by her, the, her former supporters and former leadership of the union who lost the elections to her and they were dubbed as the lesbian mafia. These people get killed today for saying that, but that's another point. They also said it had a Trotskyite president, and this refers to our uh, late Pauline Scott, a, a comrade of ours, she was also a member of the preceding organization, the Social Alliance, which was the DSP. And until recently, this is continuing the, the, what they are um, supposedly, they have discovered in the union, and recently a nest of Sri Lankan radicals <laughs> that are supposed to be me, and I am not a Sri Lankan. <laughs> All black people don't come from Sri Lanka. <laughs> Are you <laughs> this, in there? This, <laughs> this is a bed of reds under the bed working from inside the ANF. So, there you are. All the DSP members, there's three of us who worked in there at that time, and we were all officials. We, had, we could not speak out of turn. We had to do what the leadership was telling us to do. 
And this total moron who had no idea what he was talking about was just straight painting. We worked bloody hard, I can tell you. As socialists, we worked very hard. And there's another, doo another doozy. Titled Wrong Tactics. The generous offer made by the Victorian Labour government made health authorities in other states to panic. It also caused other health professionals to begin agitating for better wages and a fear of flaws. Too much inspiration. They couldn't handle it. Then judge of the Arbitration Commission, Mr. Justice Madden, said this. said, the claim could have grave ramifications. The nurses should recognize that they are on an unusually good thing. If they persist with their industrial action, they risk losing it. It will be hard for the government to continue caring about the plight of the nurses. The principles of the state and the federal commissions are tightly woven, he says. Without full justification of the wage demands, assurances about loans and government support, the nurses might be lucky to even get a hearing. This is from a justice, which is fantastic. So everybody, everybody was attacking us. If you've just joined us, you're listening to 3CR, the Green Left Weekly program combined with Friday Morning Breakfast. You're listening to myself um, when I made the contribution to the celebration of 30 years since the nurses' strike from 1936. And, of course, 3CR was of enormous support to the nurses' strike in 1986, thanks to the community broadcast. If you have not joined up as a member, please think about it seriously. We need lots of support from people to keep the station running. And as you know, there are funding cuts coming down the line. There is a campaign that has been launched to stop the cuts again. So if you want to have more information, please go to the 3CR website. There will be more information on it. We shall continue with the contribution made at the commemoration of the 30, year, 30 years since the nurses' strike, since 1986. So that's the uh, wrap-up by the age. Now let's go to the Herald. You wouldn't believe the title they gave their bit. They said, can you trust a nurse? <laughs> and I'm thinking, today we said, can we trust the Herald, which is a bit ironic. Okay, this was their editorial. There's an anomaly. Nurses do not seem prepared to accept the heightened responsibility to match the wage claims. Such insults. They seem to have asked the community to make sacrifices, but they are unwilling to end their strike action, which hurts everybody. It further cost the health minister at that time, David White, told the nurses, such building site tactics really hurts me, that one. It's, just, it's actually very smart. So they were referring to the BLF at that time who were being hunted down to be re-registered. So he's drawing a parallel there in a sense. So he's saying these building site tactics or blue-collar tactics are not what white-collar professionals should be doing. So it's a strategy of divide and rule. So you are, you are white-collar professionals. Why are you doing what the builders do? So the, it's, it's dividing the working class. It said you must stop. They must comply with established processes of dispute resolution and again the, the arbitration commission and blah, blah, blah. There's a need for increased sense of responsibility and if this is not rediscovered, the very basis of the profession is under threat. Simply, the public will not trust them. And I find that really funny because we had more than 80% support from the public for the strike and many, many polls clearly said that. And that, this is sort of tactics the papers 
adopted at that time. Anyway, despite all the intimidation, in December 86, the Industrial Relations Commission stated that it would arbitrate the dispute provided the nurses returned to work. The members, however, voted not to return. And Irene remained steadfast, she said at that time. We can only go back to work on the basis of agreements and resolution of the problem. It's up to the nurses to make up their mind. But as I walk around the picket lines, the nurses are saying they won't go back. Well, all that did not work, so they released the police onto us. And we had police attacking uh, picket lines on horsebacks and many other things. And, and Gwyneth will go into all this sort of stuff. And of course, you had the sexism, you know, you had husbands and wives bickering. And, and funnily enough, in the, in the uniformed sector of the working class, a lot of nurses married policemen, and those very policemen attacking the picket line. So it was an amazing situation for a lot of us. So how did we organize is a question in the days when we didn't have social media, and Gwen will talk about it a bit more, which is really interesting. So I want to go on to a broader issue and, and put the strike at a different, with a, you know, a different perspective. This strike was so important that it was described by G.J. Bamba and two of his co-authors from Sydney University in a book titled International and Comparative Employment Relations. In that book they state, nurses in the Australian state of Victoria extended industrial action over 50 days in 1986, the longest strike of nurses in the country and, the lengthy, and lengthy on an international scale. So the question is, why was the strike of such importance and prominence to employers, the government, and the ruling class, the 1% we keep talking about these days? For this, we have returned to the state of the world economy at that time. So a quick bit of history here. In 1975, the federal government started providing half the operating costs of the state hospitals. After two years and a change of government, the agreement was not, arrangement was not renewed, and the seeds of the 86 strike was sown. In 1977, the Victorian government introduced staff ceilings in all government hospitals. The result, this resulted in increasing nursing shortages helped by the inadequate rates of pay. This penalized anyone making a career out of bedside nursing. So we need an explanation for this process. For that, we have to turn to an international perspective, an economic perspective on this. As for George Monbois, a British um, activist and writer for The Guardian, he, he, he defines this concept which is really vital to the strike, neoliberalism. He states, or he defines it as, neoliberalism sees competition as the defining feature of human relations. People are seen as consumers whose right to choose is primary, especially in the form of buying and selling, a system that rewards and punishes and one that maintains a marketplace as one that delivers benefits as opposed to planning. This word, neoliberalism, was coined in 1938. So I want to jump to the 60s and 70s, where you had the Keynesian um, economy, which flourished after the war, but it fell apart during the 70s. Following this, with the help of journalists, political advisors, elements of neoliberal, neoliberalism, especially its prescription for monetary policies, Jimmy Carter from the US and Jim Callaghan from the UK adopted these neoliberal policies and became part of the government's 
shenanigans. Then, followed by Thatcher and Ronald Reagan, many more followed with the support of the IMF, WTO, World Bank, and the Europeans by the Maastricht Treaty. Neoliberal policies were adopted in many countries, mostly without democratic consent. It was marked by massive tax cuts for the rich, crushing of the trade unions, deregulation, privatization, outsourcing, and competition in public services, all the things that we know today. This is a doctrine that was promising choice, but was promoted with a the slogan, there is no alternative. This doctrine preached freedom, but freedom is what, what, what is this freedom is the key question. The freedom was from freedom from trade unions, freedom from collective bargaining, freedom from regulation, freedom to poison rivers and endanger workers and people, charge iniquitous interest rates, design exotic financial instruments, freedom from tax and from distribution of wealth that lifts people out of poverty. Naomi Klein describes this doctrine thus. Where neoliberal policies cannot be imposed domestically, they are imposed by international treaties. In other words, investor-state dispute settlement, offshore tribunals where corporations can insist on removal of social and environmental protection. Today, of course, we have the TPP. In other countries, you have TIPP, and you also have NAFTA, the North Atlantic Treaty. All that um, has the components what I've just tried to explain. But the key and important thing about this is the most, this is what Monbois says, he said, the most remarkable thing about this, that's a new, neoliberal doctrine, was that even the Labour and Democrats saw it as utopia. And this is the key to the connection to the nurses' strike. This, of course, brings us to the accord, which is a reflection of that policy. For those who are not familiar with the accord, it was an agreement between the ALP federal government with Bob Hawke, SPM. Not the employers, but it's the government and Bob Hawke who signed an agreement, this agreement with the trade unions at the ACTU level. The agreement gave workers social wages like superannuation. A number of them have been whittled away now. And it took away their rights to fight for their rights on factory floor, so to speak. And I will talk about the implications of the accord on the nurses' strike later. But this puts the strike politically at an international scale. The nurses' strike challenged the very doctrine of neoliberalism at a very early stage, at a time when no one else made the connections the, party, the Labour Party, as mentioned before, saw neoliberal, neoliberalism in the form of accord as utopia, as a doctrine that provided them, that is the AOP plus the ruling class, with an alternative. The nurses, consciously or unconsciously, wanted this utopia to be brought down to reality where workers were set up to cop the wrath of neoliberalism. They wanted to break all the barriers placed in a way by this very doctrine. Health services, health services cannot be a commodity and patients cannot be consumers. It was and is a right to have a health system and the, that collectively meets the needs of people. We knew that. Perhaps don't realize that by fighting for it and fighting for our rights, we were challenging the doctrine of neoliberalism at a world scale. That is why the government, the media, the ACTU, some trade unions, journalists, and many others, including employers and employee organizations who have interest in, in the introduction and maintaining of neoliberalism in Australia, attacked the nurses' strike as they did. 
we were attacked with viciousness and consistent refusal to negotiate and rejection from the power brokers, including the NCTU. This was a political challenge to the system way ahead of its time. But I want to end this talk by this slogan that we all know very well, is if we don't fight, you lose. And welcome back. This is Laita Chalaya presenting the program today. It's a pre-record. Um, and next we have a, um interview with uh, Dr. Rehana Mohideen. Rehana is a long-term political activist, feminist, and has uh, been living in the Philippines for the last decade or so. She is now a member um, and in the leadership of the political organization in the Philippines, the PLM. I uh, interviewed Rehana a couple of days ago in relation to the political developments in the Philippines. And not many people probably know, but there's a huge... Um, Elections happening there of all levels of government. There's been a growing left movement, and of course the trade union is much more prominent in the Philippines than it is here today. So let's go to the interview. Uh, Rehan explains about a little bit of the history, and then she goes into the details of what's happening in terms of the elections and puts it also in international perspective, because America, um, as usual, has a interest in um, the, the elections in the Philippines and in the regional um, area because of their policy of a pivot into Asia. So let's um, start with the interview. Um, welcome to 3CR, Rehana. Thank you for agreeing to talk to 3CR. Maybe we can start with um, inter- an introduction. Tell us about yourself. Thanks, Lali. I'm Rehana Mohideen. I'm uh, with the Party of the Laboring Masses, translated into English, Party de la Kasnang Masa, or PLM, in the Philippines, uh, a socialist party, and uh, I'm um, uh, the head of the international desk of PLM. Okay, so um, we haven't heard much of the Philippines uh, in Australia, as you can imagine. And the only time we hear anything is when there's something happens to in Mindanao about the Muslims. You know, it's, it's always focused on that nonsense. But maybe you can tell us, I know there are some elections coming up, but there's a political process been happening from, from the Aquino days, or even Marcos days. Uh, a bit of a brief catch-up would be great, and then we can talk about what's happening at the moment, perhaps. Mm. Yeah, well, yeah, I've noticed some of the coverage in the Australian media about the Philippines, and in some ways it's very typical of the way the Australian media covers uh, what's happening, uh, the developments in third world countries, uh, as people in the third world as being, uh, you know, helpless victims of poverty and disasters, uh, waiting on the benevolent aid uh, from the West, and uh, they hardly ever cover the developments in an informed way mm-hmm. uh, in terms of you know, what people are actually doing about their situation, how they're struggling to improve their lives, how they're struggling for jobs, for, for um, the environment, for a range of rights, and so on. And, of course, the Philippines has had a very long history of struggle, um, uh, both against colonialism, uh, 800 years of Spanish colonialism, uh, and uh, it declared the first republic in Asia, uh, was declared in the Philippines um, against Spanish colonial rule, and that reverberated across Asia, including in Indonesia. 
and other countries and Malaysia. Uh, and uh, um, the more recent history of the Philippines was a, a massive struggle against the Marcos dictatorship um, and martial law in the late 70s and right through the 80s. Um, the dictatorship of Ferdinand Marcos, which um, only survived because of massive support, military and uh, uh, political and financial support, from the United States. And, um, How unusual. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And, um, and um, uh, the uh, struggle against the dictatorship, the Marcos dictatorship, gave rise to uh, a militant mass movement led by the Communist Party of the Philippines, uh, where uh, tens of thousands of young people radicalized against the dictatorship and um, uh, became socialists and became members of the Communist Party of the Philippines. And... Uh, almost um, any person you talk to in Manila, you'd find that there's a member of the family uh, who was involved in the anti-dictatorship struggle. It um, radicalized a whole generation, um, and uh, most of and that was led by the Communist Party of the Philippines. And um, that dictatorship collapsed in 1986. And uh, as a result of the mass movement uh, uh, led by the Communist Party of the Philippines, uh, but um, the, uh, after the dictatorship collapsed, uh, the government was essentially fell in the laps of uh, um, a wing of the elite uh, led by Cory Aquino, who were subsequently were opposed to the dictatorship. Cory Aquino's husband was murdered by the Marcos dictatorship. Uh, and so there was a faction of the elite that subsequently were opposed to the Marcos dictatorship and they won government uh, and the left calls it the unfinished revolution. Uh, there was an upsurge, a massive people's upsurge against the Marcos dictatorship, which ended that dictatorship, which took on uh, the U.S. might and ended that dictatorship, closed down two of the biggest U.S. bases outside the United States. The biggest U.S. bases in Asia was closed down as a result of that mass movement. But the government was captured by the uh, anti-Marcos elite and uh, so we call it an unfinished revolution, and uh, we are still struggling uh, for the completion of, uh, of that unfinished revolution. That's a very quick-potted history. Mm -hmm. of, um, I'm sure my, um, many of our listeners would know something about what's happened in the Philippines, but it's good to sort of capture the past and encapsulate it, so it gives us a basis for talking about what's happening now. Now, I'm just wondering if you could fill in about the left, in a sense, because after the Communist Party, there are a few more movements that have appeared and organizations that have appeared. So perhaps you could give us a little bit of a history of that one would be good. Yes, the left is still very strong uh, in the Philippines. And, uh, uh, for example, one of the things that strikes you uh, in uh, comparison to Australia, when you watch, uh, see the news in Australia, there's never an alternative point of view. Uh, it's either Labour, Liberal, pro-system, pro-capitalist, pro-neoliberal point of view. But um, uh, in the Philippines, the left is strong uh, and there's always an alternative point of view. There's always that alternative pool uh, that uh, attracts people to radical and militant politics. Uh, 
Uh, and of course it's got uh, a parliamentary presence as well, a couple of dozen of uh, left MPs in uh, the Philippine Congress, which is the parliament. And um, so, you know, there's, uh, uh, the mass movements are uh, organized, the trade unions, the left leads in the trade unions, the women's movement, the peasant movement, the student movement, the fisher folks. Um, you know, the left is, is there, the left, left organizes, and the left leads very uh, important struggles. Uh, the political and economic setup is one that uh, is uh, a system which is ruled by an oligarchy. Uh, and when we say an oligarchy, basically what we mean is it's a handful of, of families who are uh, a part of the elite uh, capitalist class in the Philippines, but it's a landed capitalist class. Uh, it's a class that has got economic weight is also dependent on land ownership. Uh, and in that sense, we call it an oligarchy, which is a little bit different to the capitalist class in Australia. So it's a a system uh, that is ruled by the oligarchy. It's a political system that's controlled by the oligarchy and the left has introduced this new word in the Philippine vocabulary which we've been using for several decades now, trapo. Uh, that is traditional polit politicians and traditional <laughs> politics. Oh my goodness. Uh, you've got plenty of trapper <laughs> politicians and politics of the liberal labor variety in Australia, and which we would call trapper politics in Australia, and we've got trapper politics in the Philippines, which is controlled by, by the oligarchy. And um, it's an oligarchy that's completely wedded to imperialist interests, especially the interests of the United States. Uh, and it's an oligarchy which is completely wedded to neoliberal uh, economics, uh, an oligarchy supported by technocrats who are completely wedded to neoliberal economics. And a lot of our struggles are, uh, are in response to these two features of, Philippine, of the Philippine, of Philippine society. One, the oligarchy which is servile and subservient to uh, imperialism, especially that of the United States, to a lesser extent to Australian imperialism as well. There are big Australian mining companies that are polluting and killing indigenous communities in the Philippines. It's absolutely outrageous the way these mining companies conduct themselves, the Australian mining companies. And there are also a number of Australian military agreements with the Philippines, which actually gives Australian soldiers immunity from Philippine law for crimes committed on Philippine soil. So... Um, so this uh, subservience to imperialism, which is a characteristic of the oligarchy, is one thing uh, that marks uh, all our struggles. And the second aspect is its subservience to neoliberal economic dictates. Mm -hmm. um, and, um, uh, and these are the issues that uh, we struggle around in, on the streets, in the unions, in the schools, in the women's movement. Uh, and in uh, Congress. Okay, can you give us names of some of the different left political, organized um, left, perhaps because the, after the Communist Party, um, there yes. were several other organizations that, that uh, came up. The left is um, uh, not as united as what we would like it to be. And uh, one of the things uh, that PLM uh, is uh, very, um, considers to be very important in terms of advancing the working class struggle in the Philippines is um, the unity of the left. 
PLM uh, actually, um, uh, some of its uh, main leaders come from the Communist Party of the Philippines. Uh, they were the leadership of the uh, urban centers, uh, Metro Manila and around, of the Communist Party of the Philippines. They broke from the party because they disagreed with uh, the People's War strategy, that is the military strategy, which is essentially a Maoist strategy of the Communist Party of the Philippines, which uh, the CPP still continues to follow. Uh, they have the New People's Army and they conduct guerrilla war uh, in the countryside. And um, we uh, disagreed with that strategy. We argued uh, that the primary focus should be on the mass struggle uh, and the organizing and mobilizing of the working class movement uh, 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 um, around uh, mass struggles uh, and not the military struggle. Uh, and that was the uh, uh, point at which we parted ways. But this was a long time ago. Mm. This actually happened in 1993. Oh, but yeah. sometimes when you're uh, uh, in the Philippines and you're working in the political movement, it's almost like the struggle happened yesterday. Yeah, yeah. Uh, however, uh, it's a very, it is a very changed situation. There is uh, much more willingness to uh, unify the left. So, for example, the P uh, PLM is supporting seven Senate candidates. These are national, uh, nationally run campaigns. They're not geographical Senate positions. They're national Senate positions that run like presidential campaigns. We're supporting seven uh, national Senate candidates, and one of them is this candidate of the Communist Party of the Philippines, Neri uh, Colmenares. Uh, the other one is a candidate who uh, represents the left of Akbayan, which is sort of a social democratic party uh, in the Philippines, and that's Walden Bello, who's um, been critical of Akbayan's support for the um, uh, Aquino administration. That is the son of uh, Cory Aquino, who's now the president, uh, and other uh, PLM candidates. So we've got a, a united left Senate ticket that we're uh, supporting at the moment. That's really good. So the elections are actually happening right now, aren't they? Yes, the elections are on the 9th of May. Uh, and uh, unlike in Australia, it's a set um, every uh, the, there's a given date for the elections okay. and you've got presidential elections every six years and you get half senate elections every three years hmm. and so you have this time to actually build and, pre and uh, prepare your campaign I know here it's called um, you know you're essentially given a few weeks and it's very hard hmm. for uh, the progressive movement to, to uh, compete or That's to, to, so you can't, you to can't run campaign. Really, it's a very short campaigning period. So the, it's more like America, the Philippines. Um, oh. the, the, you've got the Congress, and you've got the you've got the you've got the, con the Congress, uh, and you've got the lower house, and you've got the upper house. So mm. you've got the Senate, and you've got the lower house, which is a Congress. So uh, and. Um, it's influenced by the American system, but we don't have a process of primaries mm. um, uh, in the Philippines, mm -hmm. unlike uh, you have in the States. Mm. And, uh, and part of that is the way the oligarchy functions in politics. It's driven by its 
uh, clan-based self-interest, so not so much through established parties. Mm. The oligarchy works through their clans rather than through established political parties. So, um, but it is influenced by Amer- the American system. Um, so we've got elections on the 9th of May, uh, and uh, uh, of course, like in uh, a lot of uh, uh, other countries in the region, and unfortunately a lot of other countries in the South or Third World, however you'd like to refer to it, uh, uh, electoral fraud is, is a big, big problem. And um, uh, all the indications are that uh, the administration... Uh, which runs government and therefore runs the political machinery, controls the political machinery, um, and has been using its uh, role in government to uh, run the political machinery for its candidate, uh, Ma Rojas, it's uh, of the Liberal Party. It's, extre- it's almost 100% certain that uh, uh, there will be massive fraud. Uh, conducted by the governing party uh, to get its uh, preferred candidate in power uh, to win the presidency on the 9th of May. Uh, PLM isn't contesting the presidency. Uh, We feel we needed to prepare the ground a little bit more. We were thinking of doing it, but we decided against it. Um, so, but we are contesting the Senate, uh, um, Congress, uh, we're trying to get two representatives into Congress based on the proportional representation system that we have and a whole range of local cam- candidates from mayor to councillor and so on. Um, but we are preparing for electoral fraud and we're preparing to organize protests on uh, election day. Uh, we're preparing our forces, we're preparing our base to organize protest activities around the polling booths uh, on election day. Uh, And we think uh, there's a very strong likelihood that there will be an upsurge of protests. Uh, And we're preparing to call for failed elections uh, on election day. If you've just tuned in, you're listening to 3CR, Friday morning breakfast, and Green Left Weekly Radio. I'm Lalita Chalaya, your host. This is a pre-recorded program as the team is in Sydney for a national conference. This interview uh, currently you're listening to is an interview with Dr. Rehana Mohideen, who is in the leadership of the PLM, uh, one of the left-wing parties in the Philippines. There are elections happening in the Philippines um, on the 9th of May, and there's enormous preparation going on because it's a multi-level election process. So let's continue with the interview. So the elections essentially will happen on the 9th of May, but it looks like you're having all sorts of uh, layers are being left. You mentioned council and local positions. Uh, you talked about the, the Congress and the lower house, but then there's other, other uh, positions being left. Yes, that's, well. that's right. So everything is essentially uh, up for grabs, a presidency, half senate, mm-hmm. Uh, and then uh, district-based con- 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 congressional seats, which are the MP, members of parliament. Yes. And then also the local government. My goodness. Um, so the whole massive. thing is, yeah, so it's actually a massive electoral process uh, that's taking place. Uh, so it's all up for grabs. So it's actually a very important uh, election campaign. 
for uh, the left and progressive movement. Hmm. That's really exciting to hear. But the, the fact still remains that the Philippines has hundreds of islands like Indonesia. How, how do you all organize? There have been a similar system since uh, the 1986 overthrow of the Marcos dictatorship. So uh, the various uh, structures are in place. Uh, the public school teachers play a very important role in all this. It's compulsory uh, for them to participate in elections, in uh, running, staffing the booths. And, and um, uh, one of our uh, congressional candidates for PLM uh, is uh, the head of the public teachers' union mm. uh, and uh, is very likely to get into Congress, um, fingers crossed, uh, um, on the 9th of May. But um, um, so, you know, the, the structures have been there, uh, but uh, uh, in the last elections and these elections, uh, we've got electronic voting, mm. and that's not very secure. Mm. Uh, it was put in place uh, uh, with the argument that this would uh, decrease corruption, but that's not the case. Mm. There are various ways of tampering with the equipment. So there's massive fraud. Yeah. Uh, there's massive electoral fraud with electronic voting. Last year there was last time. Sorry, there was electoral fraud. This time there will be electoral electoral fraud. This time it will be uh, the government. We we know <laughs> we know uh, um, that uh, the administration party is preparing a massive electoral fraud. Um, so while this, while the uh, basic structure is there, of course it's subverted, and uh, and this is the point about democracy. I mean, democracy under elite rule. We call it elite democracy in the mm. Philippines. So when we describe the structure, the set, the political system that we have, we we uh, are aware of how it is subverted and the flaws in the system. We call it elite democracy, and a feature of elite democracy in the Philippines is electoral fraud. It seems like electoral fraud is not uh, unusual thing. Even the Americans um, have mm. um, certain ways of bending the rules. Absolutely. I think the uh, Filipinos <laughs> learned it from the Americans. <laughs> What a great influence that is. Okay, I just want to talk a bit more about the politics and, and the, the campaigns at hand at the moment. Now, Philippines has also become part of the TPP. Um, how, how was that received by the left and what sort of campaigns have been running there? Well, that's been fairly recent, and uh, we are against the TPP, uh, of course, and the left is against the TPP, but because... Uh, that's been a sort of a recent phenomenon in the Philippines. We haven't, uh, you know, there have been some campaigns, but it hasn't been uh, such a major campaign because it was a more recent development compared to uh, Malaysia and so on. Mm. Uh, but um, the, the thing about the TPP and any of these uh, other, any of these trade agreements is in the end it's about neoliberal po policies and it's the imposition of neoliberal policies and what we have been campaigning around for decades uh, uh, spearheaded by the trade unions is against the pillars of neoliberalism mm -hmm. and that is for us contractualization, privatization and uh, deregulation. Mm. Um, so we have, uh, we have, uh, that is understood. The working class understands what neoliberalism is because it has suffered the impacts of contractualization. Everything is subcontracted. Everything is on six-month contracts. Contractualization, uh, deregulation, and um, 
privatization. And the left has campaigned very strong and hard on these. There's a very high level of consciousness in the working class movement about these pillars of neoliberalism and why it needs to be opposed. So that's very clear. And um, we have suffered tremendously as a result of the neoliberal agenda. One of the unions that used to be uh, one of the uh, trade union federations that is um, uh, aligned with the PLM is the BMP, uh, the Solidarity of Filipino Workers. And uh, uh, the BMP at one stage uh, had uh, a hundred uh, unions affiliated to it. Uh, now, that uh, through the um, 90s and 2000, that's just, that was smashed. Uh, we, uh, factory after factory after factory closed, closed lock, stock and barrel and moved uh, to cheaper labor markets. Uh, one of the factories where we've still got a picket going, which has been going on for more than six years now, is the Gilmart factory. Uh, and a lot of the Gelmat leaders are also PLM leaders. Um, and uh, Gelmat was, uh, how big was Gelmat? I think it started off as uh, 8,000 during its heydays uh, in the uh, uh, late 70s, early 80s, 8,000, and uh, just whittled away to uh, about 1,000 a, a or so, and then they closed it. Um, uh, there are so many examples, Lali, about how uh, globalization, what we call globalization, uh, have impacted on the working class movement in the Philippines. Um, there was so many examples of factories. In one case where we were starting to prepare the shop committee were uh, our comrades and we, were start we knew that the factory was going to be closed, about two to 3,000 workers we were starting to prepare a campaign. The next day, they called the shop committee. The bosses called the shop committee, escorted it, uh, said the factory was going to close that day, and escorted the shop committee out. The security guards escorted the shop committee out of the factory, and the factory closed. Mm. Um, and, you know, this is just one example of the, of the impact of uh, neoliberal globalization. And uh, so we have fought very, very hard some very important struggles, uh, but we couldn't hold the tide of privatization, deregulation, and uh, contracts, uh, contractualization. Um, but the interesting thing is in Australia, yes, in, in, or in most first world countries, Philippines will be one of the destinations a lot of the multinationals will head to for cheaper labor. And now uh, we hear from you there are factories closing there. It, it, it's a bit of an uh, interesting situation because, you know, where are these um, multinationals going to is one question. But what is it about the Philippines that um, drives this desire to close factories? Because that means they are moving offshore from the Philippines. So would it be China? I mean, I know Bangladesh is one of the destinations. Thailand's another destination. So what's the dynamics there? Because how, well, I mean, how many countries are there you can go to? 
Well, it depends on the industry you're talking about. But uh, if you're talking about the garment and textiles, which is where our big base was, uh, it went to Vietnam and uh, um, China mm. and Cambodia. Mm, um, yes. So those are some of the cheaper labor destinations. Uh, Ch- uh, uh, China probably not so much actually, but it went to Vietnam and Cambodia, uh, the garment and textile factories, and. Um, Of course, uh, the other uh, uh, part of factory closures is it's uh, union busting. Mm. It's also a, a union busting agenda of the of the corporations, of the bosses, uh, and so they do close the factories where the uh, unions have been established over a period of time, uh, where the left has established strong unions. So it was also part of the agenda of neoliberalism, of busting unions. You, you basically close the factory mm. and left. Mm. Um, uh, so it's part of that. Now, what you're talking about uh, now is there's another wave of um, uh, new industries that have started to de- develop, and these are the call centers. Yes, of course. And that's where uh, Australian companies are uh, coming uh, in to, uh, apart from mining, which is a different story, other Australian companies are coming in. Uh, I think um, uh, Virgin Australia has got a call centre there uh, and uh, a couple of other Australian corporations. Um, Now, these call centres are very, very hard to organise. We've been trying for a long time, we've been trying to organise these call centres. It's a different kind of workforce uh, to the factory workforce um, uh, that we've organised in the past. A lot of them, you need to speak English for Mm. a start Mm. uh, because you're dealing with an international customer base. And uh, so um, most of the young ones who work there who speak English are generally college educated. Mm. Uh, They're students sort of. So the culture is more sort of a college educated student kind of culture. Uh, um, and of course, their work, uh, these uh, incredible hours, these uh, uh, graveyard shifts and yes. so on. Uh, it's not easy to penetrate these places. They're in these sort of ivory tower buildings where you have to go through all <laughs> sorts of security uh, measures. Yeah, electronic-based <laughs> security measures. It's not like you can go walk in through a factory gate and go and talk yeah. to, you know, and so on. So it's, it's, also, it's very hard to organize it, and we still haven't quite figured out how to do it. Mm. Uh, you know, we've had, we've uh, tried all sorts of things. We sent students in there, not our, conven- not, not our usual trade union organizers. We sent students in to organize because it was more of a student kind of culture and the language and the, and the uh, behavior. And, uh, but, uh, and then the st- uh, some of our students went in there. They organized meetings at midnight, leafleting at midnight, and so on and so forth. But we still haven't managed to break through there. Um, and uh, yeah, we'll, we'll keep trying. Mm. And I guess um, you know, last but not least, we should talk about a spratly islands dispute. Is that is that a big feature in the Philippines? Or yes, not? it's a, it's a very important part of the international uh, 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 foreign policy, international uh, politics uh, space because. Um, uh, you know, uh, it's a heavily contested uh, territorially. 
uh, everyone's got a claim, yes. uh, China, everyone uh, in Southeast Malaysia. Asia and yes. China uh, have a claim. Um, and um, uh, it's also very strategic. Uh, it's a major uh, trade route, a mm. major shipping route. Uh, it's got uh, uh, all sorts of uh, um, important minerals, oil, and so on underneath. Uh, so it's very strategic as a uh, shipping route, trade route, uh, as uh, uh, mineral and various um, oil deposits and so on as well that have uh, as yet been untapped. Uh, we, uh, our, our position is that uh, you know, this has to be sorted out through uh, negotiations and uh, uh, through uh, uh, trade agreements uh, amongst ASEAN countries and China. Um, and uh, China does uh, uh, bully its way around the region, uh, and we are critical of that. Uh, 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 and so on. Uh, so while we are critical of China, on the other hand, uh, we don't think uh, the military solution is the answer. We think ASEAN and the uh, other countries, China, have to sit down and negotiate it uh, and work out some sort of uh, regional agreement that is beneficial uh, to all uh, the economies and peoples of the region. Uh, we are completely opposed to uh, other imperialist powers, especially the United States, yes. <laughs> uh, inter intervening, and the U.S. is using this, uh, is using the dispute and the disputed claims to uh, assert its role, to uh, plant its flag again in, in the region, and of course the Filipino elite, as subservient as ever, uh, are going along with this. Um, uh, and this is also a part of the whole reorientation of the U.S. military strategy, the pivot to Asia, right. uh, where much more of the emphasis is now on its uh, military role in Asia. Part of it is motivated by China uh, as a major economic power. So we are ex absolutely opposed to U.S. intervention in the region, absolutely opposed to U.S. militarization of the, of the dispute. Uh, what the United States wants to do is to militarize a dispute. Uh, and, of course, we know they have a massive base in Korea. They have, a massive, they have bases in Japan. Uh, China doesn't have any bases outside its own country. I mean, it basically uses its boats and its uh, marine forces. Of course, uh, the junior partner, Australia. Uh, so we are absolutely opposed to uh, uh, intervention by the big powers, the United States, and to a lesser extent, Australia. Uh, and the militarization of the dispute, we think uh, the uh, countries in the region had to work out a regional agreement. Mm. Thank you, Rihanna. That was great. Thank you. Thanks. You are listening to Greenleaf Radio on the Friday morning breakfast show, broadcast live on 3CR Radio, 855 AM digital and streaming live on 3cr.org.au. Greenleaf Radio is brought to you by the Greenleaf Weekly newspaper, providing a weekly source of alternative information which aims to inspire action to put people and the environment before profit. Subscribe to Greenleft Weekly by visiting the website at greenleft.org.au or call 1-800-634-206. For new subscribers, it's only $10 for the first seven issues.
This interview we is with Leon Hill, who is the marketing director of the Secret Solstice Celebration. It's a music festival in Iceland. It's obviously um, a festival during the summer solstice for them, and for us, of course, it's a colder month. It's a massive uh, festival, and the prime feature of it is that it is completely carbon neutral. I'll allow Leon to explain the details of um, this preparation and cooperation and achievement by the Icelandic community. And uh, interestingly enough, Leon is from Australia, a Brisbane boy. So let's have a chat to him now. Welcome to Theresia, Leon, and thank you so much for talking to us all the way from Iceland. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, it, it sounds fantastic. You've got a, um, a secret solstice festival that is completely carbon neutral. It is, yeah. So um, this year we've, we've become one of the only major carbon neutral music festivals on earth. Uh, which for us is, is, uh, it's, it's, you know, of course it's a, it's a great, um, great thing for us to be able to do, but I, I think it's, it's also, uh, great for us to be able to get so much exposure around it as, as, um, you know, a little bit of, uh, a push for other events to look at doing the same. So it kind of feels really good to, to be, uh, uh, yeah, I guess leading the charge on, on this kind of stuff. And there's, there aren't many places in the world better to do it than Iceland. Yes, yes, yes. I mean, the fact that you guys live near the North Pole almost and, um, you know, you, you have been able to achieve this is almost miraculous. So tell us, how did you go? Firstly, how did the idea come about and how did you then were able to implement these ideas? Uh, so basically, one of, one of our major partners, uh, Icelandic Glacial Water, they're a carbon neutral company, and um, uh, they they were really sort of, um, you know, it made sense for us to to do something similar that they were doing, and they they have a lot of good ideas on on how to implement these practices because they've done it uh, they've done it before us uh, in the same country. Uh, obviously, you know, a bottled water company is a lot different to doing it with an event, but um, there are a lot of things that make it a lot easier to do in Iceland than in some uh, other parts of the world. So, for example, Iceland. Uh, runs almost uh, completely on geothermal energy, which is completely renewable, uh, comes literally straight out of the ground. Uh, just uh, So they basically tap into steam vents next to uh, volcanic fissures into the ground uh, to generate steam power that way. So um, like I said, it's completely renewable. Uh, we're one of the only music festivals on Earth that runs completely from geothermal power. Uh, of course, that doesn't include you know flying uh, delegates in and, and artists in from abroad and our cars. Uh, and things like that, but it does help uh, a lot. Um, we've also entered into a partnership this year with T- Toyota Iceland, uh, who've uh, basically given us a fleet of hybrid cars, which helps as well. Um, but on top of that, we just yeah had to figure out uh, figure out uh, you know what we were emitting in terms of carbon from artist transport and the stuff that we do on the ground with vehicles, and then uh, offsetting that to uh, with uh, a rainforest conservation effort in uh, in Madagascar. Uh, we also just confirmed at the end of last week that. Uh, our uh, front gate of our festival site is going to be powered by wind. Uh, our airline partner, Wow Air, has pr- is providing us with um, uh, some uh, wind power turbines. So despite the fact that we'll be running most of the festival site from geothermal energy, uh, the main front gate of the site will literally be powered by wind, which is another cool thing that we're doing this year. That's amazing because, uh, as you said, you know, it, it's, there are so many other countries that are better placed to do something like this with all the solar power around, like Australia, for example. And you are from Australia, aren't you? I am, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I grew up about an hour south of Byron Bay, and uh, and yeah, then uh, yeah, my my early twenties, I was in Brisbane most of the time, and yeah, the last three years, I've been here in Iceland. Ah, your sun boy, yes. And tell us, why is this called a secret festival? 
Uh, I don't know. I think the name just stuck uh, when the uh, the festival director Fred Olufsen was uh, coming up with names. Uh, solstice, the solstice part of the festival obviously made sense because uh, we hold the event over the summer solstice weekend in Iceland, uh, where the sun doesn't set. I mean, right now it's it's almost quarter past ten uh, p.m. Uh, in Iceland. Right now, the sun's still not down, uh, and in about a month, it will never go down at all. Uh, the secret part, I think, it, yeah, it just it was uh, it just stuck. It just sounded good, and we we uh, we ran with it. Hmm. And who are the people who actually attend these festivals? Uh, we do have a large uh, large portion of our guests are Icelandic. Uh, it will probably be about sixty or seventy percent of our guests will be from Iceland, uh, but the remainder of of about the fifteen thousand guests that we'll have uh, from this year. Uh, will be from abroad. Uh, we do have a, a large percentage of our guests coming from the United States, Canada, and North America. But funnily enough, the first ticket that we actually sold this year was to an Australian. <laughs> so uh, we we do have some people coming all the way from the other side of the uh, other side of the planet, including my younger sister and my best friend, are both flying over this year for the first time as well. So uh, yeah, they, we do have a pretty big Australian population coming as well to the festival, and it's not really a surprise because you can find Australians. Everywhere, it doesn't matter where you go in the world. Uh, we tend to be uh, pretty prolific. Very, very good travellers, aren't they? Now, going back to the um, carbon neutral aspect of this festival that you are the marketing director of, were there other people, progressive, politically progressive people, who came up with the idea? No, so I mean, it was it was basically uh, we, we do have a lot of support from the city of Reykjavik and the Icelandic government. Uh, we, we we literally couldn't run the event without them. Uh, but as far as the carbon neutral certification, it was uh, it was something that we we really wanted to do one from an environmental aspect, uh, but two, it, it really fits in with a lot of uh, what a lot of our partners were doing. So, uh, like I mentioned, Icelandic Glacier Water, they're carbon neutral, and uh, and yeah, the the idea came from them. Uh, and it was a it was actually uh, a fairly quick process for us to implement it this year. But um, uh, we do, uh, of course, you know there there are other things behind it. So um, we were able to uh, do the carbon offset at a at a very uh, a lot lower of a rate than uh, a lot of other companies do. Just like I said, because of the geothermal energy, but also because of our recycling plan and and uh, and uh, a few other uh, sort of heavy on site. Uh, activations that we do with recycling that we work in with the city of Reykjavik. So, um, yeah, they're all kind of smaller parts of it, but, um, yeah, every little bit does help. Is there anything else you want to share with us in relation to this um, very progressive idea that you guys are implementing? Um, yeah, I mean, I guess it, it just it, it feels really cool to be in a country that, uh, like I said earlier, that runs almost completely on geothermal energy. Iceland actually overproduces electricity. Uh, the, uh, the, the Brits have been over here recently discussing with the Icelandic government about uh, building a cable from Iceland to the UK to supply the UK with power because the country literally produces so much energy. And it, it's, it's kind of cool, I guess, to, you know, although I know not every country has a geothermal resource, you know, Iceland is, is very unique in the respect that, uh, that it, um, you know, it's one of the most volcanically active places in the world. But I think it, it's, it's a very good marker to see that, that it is something that maybe not geothermal, but that every country does have resources like this that we can tap into. Australia, for example, sea power and solar. Um, it's just the fact that, you know, coal companies and things like that have such a stranglehold on the industry that uh, we don't implement them. But there's nothing to say that Australia couldn't be doing the exact same thing. It's just, unfortunately, we're not at the stage yet where we're, we're tapping into those uh, amazing natural resources that we have to the level that we should be. Uh, and, uh, yeah, I guess that's that's an amazing part about being in a country that that you know, does tap into the resources that they have.
Mm, that sounds really interesting. Now that, that you, now that you've touched on the politics a little bit, tell us about what's happening in Reykjavik because uh, I know the Prime Minister was recently dismissed because of the Panama Papers. I don't know if you want to talk about this, but if you, if you want to share um, your experiences in the politics of Iceland, that'd be great. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, you know, not being Icelandic, I don't have as much of a view into uh, the politics as, as a local. I speak a little bit of Icelandic, but, um, but not a lot. And uh, so, you know, I, I don't have that big of an insight into what's exactly going on because, you know, everything on the news is, is all in Icelandic. Um, however, uh, yeah, you know, being here uh, over the last few weeks when uh, when the uh, protests were, were going on here uh, was an insane thing to be a part of. Um, the, uh, squ- the square uh, around uh, Parliament uh, or the main government building in uh, in Reykjavik is, is not very large, but um, it, it, it's it's an incredible sight when there's 24,000 uh, people which, uh, you know, packed into it. And to put that in perspective, the, the population of the entire country is only 320,000 people. So when you consider that's, you know, it's such a large percentage of the population that turned out for these protests. Um, yeah, basically, one thing that I really love about Icelanders is ideas spread here very quickly because the country's so small. So it, it only takes a couple of people to get really, really annoyed about what the government's doing before everyone's really pissed off about it. Um, so, uh, yeah, things tend to happen here very quickly uh, if you have, uh, you know, a small group of people that, that want something to change. And, you know, in the case that, uh, you know, of, of the protests that happened recently, it, it ended up with the, uh, with the prime minister getting kicked out. Um, so uh, it's, you know, it's something that you don't really see happening uh, as quickly in, uh, in major countries like Australia that have such a large population, I think, because you have so many different uh, views in the populace that it, it, it can take a lot. Uh, it, it can take quite a lot before it, there's enough of the population causing a stink about it than so, that something happens. Here in Iceland, it's definitely not the case. Um, so, uh, so yeah, it is. Again, that's another cool thing about this country. It is extremely progressive, um, but it, it's also cool to be a part of a, a nation where you feel like that the people have a serious amount of power because it doesn't take that many people to to uh, to get the government to stand up and listen. A truly, people's um, power country, eh? <laughs> it is, yeah. Yeah. Um, the the other thing is the women's uh, issues are very strong in Iceland. I know in 1975, 94% of the women went on strike, and uh, very quickly the parliament had a majority of uh, women on it. So what have you seen in relation to women's rights in Iceland? Uh, girl power definitely exists in this country. Uh, it, it's it's not uh, Iceland is definitely definitely not a place where you notice any kind of uh, discrepancy between uh, how men and women are treated in uh, in society, in the workplace, and anything. You know, it, it is it is truly a, a, a country where where uh, um, you know women have just as much power as men. Uh, you know, the first democratically elected head of state in the world was here in Iceland. Um, uh, uh, which was Vigdis Finnbogadottir, uh, who was uh, elected, I think, in the uh, 80s, no, 80s or 90s. I'm not sure actually on that one, uh, but um, yeah, she's still a very, uh, uh, a very uh, prominent figure here in Iceland. Um, but yeah, it, it's. Uh, I think there's there's a few other things that that Iceland does extremely well. Uh, for example, I think on the uh, on boards of companies and in in politics, uh, no less than uh, 40% of the board members of the country are allowed to be uh, from any one sex. So it has to be either, you know, uh, they can't be less than 40% uh, women on it, which is which is another amazing thing that the government does here. Uh, but, yeah, um, we, we have, in our festival, we have uh, quite a few uh, women that work in the event, and, you know, they are as 
capable or more capable than us men are. So, um, yeah, but it, it feels amazing to be in a country where, where, uh, not just with, with women's rights, but with, uh, women's rights, but with gay rights as well. Um, you know, uh, gay people as with women are as equal as, uh, straight or, or uh, straight people or men. Um, which is completely different to at home in Australia. Uh, it, it just feels good to be living in a country where, where everyone, regardless of, of their, uh, their, their views or their gender, uh, or their beliefs are treated as equal human beings. That is amazing to hear. I was going to ask you about the gay rights issue because no one talks about it in Religion Island, Iceland. But it's, it, the population is almost as big as a council really here, isn't it? If each council was to act like people act in Iceland, we'll have a lot of changes in this country, I have to say. Yeah, we, w- we would. I mean, uh, it, it's just, I didn't, it really didn't hit me so hard until I moved to Iceland. Um, but one of my best friends at home in Australia, she's, uh, she's gay and, and, you know, I, I, of course, you know, I'm not an idiot. I always knew that she didn't have the same rights as me, but it, it never really hit home so hard until I was in Iceland. Um, I mean, gay people here, they have, if they want to get married, if they want to adopt children, it's not a matter of, of they have to go through a whole bunch of rigmarole or extra stuff. It's just, oh yeah, you're, you're two people. You know, you should be able to do, you can do exactly the same as any other two people can do. And it really kind of hit me hard when I, when I first got to Iceland and I considered that, that, you know, in the eyes of our government at home in Australia, you know, my best friend, she's not an equal human being as I am. Uh, and it, it, it really sucks. Uh, um, you know, one, it feels, it feels great to be in a country that, that does view uh, all human beings as equal people. But, um, it really hit me a lot harder when I, when I thought about my uh, best friend, Brianna, uh, and the, yeah, the fact that she's not an equal citizen in the eyes of the law in Australia. And I hope it's something that re- really changes quickly. For us, I was very actually surprised that the Americans beat us to it. Well, thank you so much, Leon. That has been a pleasure talking to you. Yeah, sounds good. And if you if you feel the urge to uh, see Radiohead uh, this year when the sun doesn't set in Iceland at the middle of the night, uh, come over to Secret Solstice. And what day is it on? Sixteenth uh, to the nineteenth of June this year. Thank you so much. Thanks. Bye. See you. That was Leon Hill, all the way from Iceland, and he's organising a Secret uh, Solstice. Um, music festival and completely carbon neutral. What an amazing job he's doing. Okay, so quickly, we've got one more interview, and this is with um, Lisa Chalk from Animals Australia about a concept called Factory Puppies, so or Puppy Factories, rather. So let's listen to that interview, and um, that'll bring us to the end of the show. Thank you for agreeing to talk to 3CR, Lisa. Um, Lisa's from Australia. Animals Australia, and we are going to talk about what is coined as puppy factories. Lisa, what can you tell us? Sure, hi. Look, it's no secret that Australia is a nation of dog lovers. I think something like two in three households is lucky enough to be home to a dog. But this love of dogs has actually fueled a very cruel industry where we've got unscrupulous breeders um, breeding dogs um, for profit and where many cases of animal cruelty are being found. And that's what is coined as puppy factories. They're literally churning out puppies for profit. So what's the um, Animals Australia doing about it at this stage? 
Well, we've um, uncut, we've had a number of investigations. We've run a major public awareness campaign, and there are other groups like Oscar's Law working in this space too. This is a huge problem. I, I think many Australians will be shocked that so many dogs bought online or in pet shops are from puppy factories. But I don't think people quite understand the pervasive nature of this problem. It's everywhere. We've got thousands of puppies being sold on sites like Gumtree and the Trading Post every single day. And we need people to make that connection between that cute puppy they're either seeing online or in a pet shop and the puppy factory that puppy most likely came from and refuse to support this industry. Hmm. It's, it's a little bit hard to to control or monitor uh, something that goes on Gumtree or that type of internet um, sale uh, avenues, I guess. But it, it's strange, isn't it? I mean, people breed puppies generally for pets. But what you're saying is the puppy factory is just churning out too many puppies for profit. That means they're not being treated very well or are are the dogs getting pregnant too frequently? What's the story behind this? Well, a couple of things there. I mean, we're not talking about backyard breeders here. This is a well-established, lucrative industry. Some puppy factories can have 150 to 200 breeding dogs and are turning over hundreds of thousands of dollars a year. But you're absolutely right. The problem is that the breeding of dogs is largely unregulated by government, but the sale of dogs on online trading sites like Gumtree and the Trading Post is also completely unregulated, and this has created environments where unscrupulous breeders can hide, and they're really thriving. So what do you think um, can be done about this? I know you, you've run a um, awareness campaign, as you mentioned before. Um, how else can people help with this sort of stuff? Look, it's confronting, but people should feel anything but hopeless and disempowered because the reality is that it's up to us, us as a nation of dog lovers to fix this problem. It, it would be nice if governments would do the right thing, but traditionally they will always prioritise commercial enterprises over animal welfare. So it is up to us to be vigilant. What can we do? We can refuse to buy dogs in pet shops and online. We can, if we're looking at a particular breeder, make sure you visit the premises, see how the parents are living, make sure you're comfortable with the facility itself. But, you know, the most direct way that we can stamp out puppy factories is to consider adoption. Every year, something like 70,000 dogs are killed in shelters and pounds across the country. And they're there through no fault of their own whatsoever. They just need a family to love them and will make amazing and loving pets. So you save a life and you will ensure you're not supporting an industry that's uh, making money out of animal cruelty. Mm. So where can um, listeners get more information and how can they help uh, by supporting your organisation, for example? Sure. Well, awareness is key. We've uh, got a website, knowyourbestfriend.com. We've put together a list of questions you should be asking when buying a puppy. And look, by following these simple guides, you can make sure you're not supporting puppy factories. That's knowyourbestfriend.com. Hmm. So you you guys also involved in things like uh, racing uh, dogs and even horses being whipped and stuff like that, aren't you? Well, Animals Australia was one of the two organisations that exposed live baiting in the greyhound industry last yes, year. Yes. And this is another industry that has flourished um, and is responsible for extreme acts of animal cruelty. And the reason it's flourished is because it's gone on with very little government oversight. Fortunately, since we exposed those horrific practices, a lot has changed. There's still a long way to go, but exposing this is the first thing we have to do. And that's what we're trying to do with puppy factories.
Mm. So that's good that you actually started to um, make noises about this because eventually it gets somewhere. But the racing industry was a very good um, intervention by you guys. So let's hope this this uh, puppy manufacturing is um, curtailed and we certainly at 3CR will be supporting your campaign. And uh, if you want to send us more information, we can put up put it up on our website. That will be actually uh, very helpful because people... As, as you said, you know, Australia is a dog-loving nation, and I love dogs too. <laughs> but we it's, all do. Yes, Anna, they, they look so cute when they're little, and then they get yes. bigger. They get treated and badly. And I guess that's the problem. Um, puppy farmers rely on people falling in love with the face of a cute puppy and becoming so enraptured they don't ask questions. But dogs desperately need us to start asking questions because while that puppy may go to a loving home, when you're buying that puppy, what you're actually doing is stealing the face of that puppy's parents whose lives of misery will continue in the puppy factory. Hmm. What actually to the, uh, happens to the parents? Because, I mean, like all animals, um, dogs would feed their uh, puppies. But in this case, the puppies will be taken away. Uh, what do they do to the parents to stop the milk coming in? And, you know, that, that dog must really yearn for its puppy. It's ill. Just to think about it makes it feel terrible. Oh, it's really sad. I mean, breeding dogs in puppy factories lead lives of absolute deprivation. They're trapped in this continuous cycle of breeding. In most states, there isn't even a limit on the number of puppies or um, litters a breeding dog can have. So we actually see dogs literally being bred to death. When they're past their supposed use-by date, they're killed. And so this is no life for an animal that we consider to be our best friend. Oh, that sounds really ghastly. I would hate to um, be involved with these people. You, you, you've got to have a lack of compassion to be involved in an industry like that, wouldn't you? Look, I think considering um, this is an animal we consider man's best friend, you do have to ask how as a society such an, uh, this industry has been allowed to grow and to flourish. If you can't get your relationship with dogs right, then what hope do other animals have? And that's why we're really hoping this will open people's eyes. And we have no doubt that we'll have Australia on side. People love dogs. People love animals. They just need to know that this is occurring and what they can do to help stop it. Mm. Just for listeners' information, how big is this industry? Well, the Pet Industry Association estimates nearly half a million puppies are sold in Australia each year. Most of them are unaccounted for. They're sold online or through pet shops. Some breeders will sell dogs directly. But it's a massive industry. And the um, rough estimate of turnover in this um, in this industry is it eight million? It's or? very hard. Oh, look, it's very hard to know. It could, it's probably in the millions. The reason it's hard to know is because the sales are unregulated. A lot of cash changes hands in this industry. But if you consider that puppies on Gumtree or the Trading Post can go for up to three thousand dollars each, Ooh. you have a you have a puppy factory with uh, 150 to 200 breeding dogs. You're talking about a turnover in one facility of hundreds of thousands of dollars. Mm. So this is very lucrative. Yeah, sounds like it. But anyway, um, let's hope that people who are listening to the program will take heed of what you've just told us. And as I said before, um, you know, if you want to send us some information, we can put it up on our website as well. And thank you, thank so, you much. so much. Yeah, thank you. Bye. That was Lisa Chalk from Animals Australia explaining to, explaining to listeners about uh, what is termed as uh, puppy factories and the cruelty that has been uh, dished out to these poor um, parent dogs, if you like, uh, taking their puppies away and 
unlimited amount of pregnancies and then the puppies being taken away. Sounds pretty awful. A couple of announcements just before we end the show. A public meeting with Marta Hanukkah and Michael Lebowitz. Prospects for real social change in Latin America today. At the Victoria University Metro West, 138 Nicholson Street, Footscray, on the 19th of May at 7 p.m. So for those who are interested, it's the 17th of May, 7 p.m. at the Victoria University Metro West Campus, 138 Nicholson Street, Footscray. Another announcement is a um, fundraising event, Politics and Pasta, on the 21st of May from 5 p.m. at 48 Blair Street, Coburg. And this is a fundraiser for the Moorland re-election of the Socialist Alliance candidate um, for the uh, council elections, of course, Sue Bolton. You've heard her on the program many times and has been interviewed by other programs on 3CR as well. So that is 21st of May, which is a Saturday from 5 p.m. at 48 Blair Street, Coburg. But anyway, that brings us to the end of the show. So let's thank Rehana Mohidin, or Dr. Rehana Mohidin, from the Philippines, who gave us a brief outline of the history of the Philippines and giving us an update on the upcoming elections on the 9th of May. So we will try and um, catch up with her after the election to see which way the pendulum swings in the Philippines. Um, I guess it's just as exciting as um, the U.S. elections because... This is an important one for the USA as well because of the pivot to Asia concept that we all are familiar with. So we need to keep our toes about, keep on our toes about what's happening in the Asia, Asian region. And this is one of those key countries, especially because it was a colony of the US in the past. And of course, next we have Leon Hill, who was uh, talking to us about the carbon neutral music uh, festival that he's organizing, Secret secret, uh, Solstice Music Festival, which is an amazing effort and definitely a fantastic example for a country that is so far away from the sunshine, and yet they were were able to use thermal uh, heat and thermal energy to save um, the planet, so to speak, really, especially when when you think of the fact that they're so close to the North Pole, it must be. Uh, not too much um, solar energy up there, that's for sure. And finally, we have um, Lisa Chalk, who talked to us about um, puppy factories, which is a very, very sad concept. But um, there you are. So you can look up all these things in Animal Australia for, for details. And when you buy pets, pet dogs really, um, it's good to be able to... Uh, in a, a touch base or do some research about what's actually happening in these industries where everything is money, is, is economy, it's money. If you can sell it, you can um, make money out of it. Like, for example, I heard recently that they are selling air to China. That's the last straw, I have to say. But anyway, thank you for listening to Friday Breakfast. And unfortunately, this is a a pre-record, but I hope you enjoyed the different items that we presented. As I said before, all the team members are going to Sydney, and we will be coming back with lots and lots of um, new interviews and recordings of uh, international speakers like Michael Lebowitz uh, from Canada, and we've got Marta Hanukkah, who is an expert in Latin American issues, and we will be seeing many 
um, other speakers, some from Malaysia, some from India, and of course the Philippines. Thank you for listening, and we shall be on air again next Friday. Until then, bye-bye from Lalitha Chalaya. This brings us to the end of the show. You have been listening to Friday Morning Breakfast with Green Left Radio. Green Left Radio is brought to you by the Green Left Weekly newspaper. Green Left Weekly provides a weekly source of alternative information which aims to inspire action to put people and the environment first. If you would like to subscribe to Green Left Weekly and get it delivered to your door, you can do so by visiting the website at greenleft.org.au or call 1-800-634-206. For new subscribers, it's only $10 for the first seven issues. Thank you for listening. You are tuned to 3CR Community Radio 855 Digital on the AM dial and streaming live on 3cr.org.au.